Good afternoon, everybody. We're just gonna wait for folks to join and we'll be starting shortly. We're just going to go ahead and give it a couple more minutes. We have some some folks still joining us this morning or this afternoon, excuse me. So please hang tight. All right, in the interest of time, we're gonna go ahead and get started this afternoon. First, I wanna welcome everybody and thank you for joining today's webinar. My name is Adonia Simpson. I direct policy and pro bono at the American Bar Association's Commission on Immigration. As many of you may know, in December, Operation Allies Welcome reported that approximately 83,000 Afghans have been resettled most of whom are individuals who have entered via humanitarian parole. Some estimates state that approximately 60% of the resettled Afghans are not eligible for SIV or special immigrant visas, which makes the context and information from today's webinar so incredibly important. The American Bar Association Commission on Immigration has formally partnered with HIAS on a project to develop both pro se and pro bono materials. Um, and this is the first in a series of webinars. Today's webinar is a general overview of Afghan asylum. We will be taking deeper dives and sharing um, additional information in future webinars. We will post the links to, to register for those webinars um, towards the end of the, the webinar today. And uh, we encourage you to share that information with others. Uh, we encourage you to get involved. We will also give you information on how to actually volunteer and assist Afghans who will be seeking asylum in the coming months and years. Additionally, I would like to extend a huge thank you to Skadden, who is providing CLE credits to the live attendees of today's training. Uh, the CLE credits are available for Illinois, New York, Texas, and California. Please stay tuned. We will be announcing the CLE code towards the end of the presentation. You will need this code to be able to complete the CLE form, which will be circulating to attendees via, uh, via email following today's webinar. For housekeeping, we can't do a webinar without covering the housekeeping. Please make sure that you use the Q&A function for any questions that you may have. Do not use the chat. But we will be responding, uh, both um, members of the Commission on Immigration and HIAS will be responding to your questions in the chat. Many of the questions may be more appropriately addressed at some of our deeper dive 102 and, and 101 webinars that are coming up in the future. Uh, please stay tuned to both of the Commission on Immigration and HIAS's social media and websites for additional opportunities. Um, since we've covered housekeeping, I want to go ahead and introduce our fantastic speaker for today, Dina Sharouk. Uh, she is on contract with the ABA as a senior legal advisor to the Commission on Immigration, a phenomenal presenter. I'm extremely excited to hear her talk today. She has taught asylum law and immigration law at Georgetown University Law Center and the University of Virginia School of Law. 
She's practiced in both pro bono legal services and private setting for nine years. So we're really benefiting from, from her expertise today. Um, so again, thank you all for joining. And Dina, I wanna pass it over to you. Thank you so much, Adonia. That's very kind. And, and thank you all for attending. It's, it's great that there's such an interest in the subject matter. Um, you know, Adonia has highlighted the need. Uh, so let's, uh, let's do a little bit of discussion of the roadmap and then let's hop into it. So uh, today we're going to talk, like, like Adonia mentioned, this is a very broad overview. We're going to give a quick definition of asylum and talk a little bit about the benefits of asylum. So if we're going to pursue it, why do we want it? <laughs> um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about who's eligible for asylum. And uh, we'll talk about the affirmative applications for Afghan parolees. Um, where you know this talk is really focused today on those who've been paroled into the United States, um, Afghans who've been paroled into the United States and um, who, who qualify for asylum. And then finally, we'll, we'll end on um, some of the future presentations and resources and, and give some opportunity for, for question and answer. Um, let's jump into it then. All right, so um, for asylum, well, let's, you know, we'll, we'll move to the next slide um, if we can. Uh, so asylum really is a form of protection that we, you know, we here in the United States and in other countries as well, offer refuge to individuals who are fleeing persecution on account of certain protected grounds. Uh, we'll get into those protective grounds shortly and, and a little bit more in depth. Um, we can go on uh, to the next slide. So why, why would somebody want asylum? Um, you know, somebody who's entering the US as uh, with humanitarian parole, an Afghan who enters with humanitarian parole, they have a limited and, and temporary status here in the United States and it, it ends generally after two years. Um, so what happens to them after those two years? Um, asylum allows somebody to, to stay in the United States um, and it uh, can bestow a derivative status on the spouse and unmarried children uh, under the age of 21. So it's, it, you know, if you qualify for asylum, your spouse and your children um, get the benefits of that asylum as well. It is a pathway to citizenship. So um, after a year of holding asylum, you can apply for uh, legal permanent residence status or what we colloquially refer to as the green card. And um, years after that, you can apply for citizenship. Um, uh, there's also permission to work. Now, a lot of people, uh, the folks who entered on humanitarian parole, um, many of them were issued employment authorization for the time that they're here in the United States, as well as a social security card. But that employment authorization will run out after those two years. And uh, asylum also allows somebody to work here in the United States. And, and finally, um, when you get asylum, you have access to certain forms of government assistance, uh, financial, medical, uh, access to English language courses and employment training and placement. Um, some, of these, uh, some of these benefits are, are available for a limited period after receiving asylum and some are available in, in various forms after, um, uh, you know, after getting your, your green card or, or legal permanent residence and, and even citizenship. Um, so let's, now we have a little bit of an idea of why we may want this for our clients. Let's talk a little bit about the eligibility for, for asylum. So um, the uh, eligibility for asylum is, is rooted in the uh, Immigration and Nationality Act, the INA. Um, and, and truly what it means is somebody who has arrived in the United States 
who uh, meets the definition of a refugee. Now we're talking about eligibility today. Just because somebody is eligible for asylum does not mean that they automatically get asylum. We'll talk more about this shortly, but asylum is a discretionary um, is a discretionary benefit. Uh, so, so um, we'll we'll talk a bit about what can uh, push the uh, the scales in a client's favor. Uh, there are also bars to asylum, so somebody may meet the eligibility requirements, but then be barred from asylum for, for previous uh, uh, behavior or um, actions that they take now. Um, so as we mentioned, somebody who is eligible for asylum has is here in the United States and meets the definition of a refugee. And somebody who meets the definition of a refugee is somebody who is unable or unwilling to return to their home country because of a well-founded fear of persecution on account of their race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, if we go to the next slide, it's a little bit more digestible looking at it this way as uh, looking specifically at the elements of asylum, somebody who's here in the United States. Um, so you can't apply for asylum while you're still abroad. Um, but when talking about folks who have humanitarian parole, they've made it here to the United States at this point. So we can check that little uh, box off. Uh, the next is somebody who's unable or unwilling to return to home country. When we talk about somebody who's unable to return to home country, it's often because they've been stripped of their citizenship or their, their access to their, their home country. Um, we're not really going to see that much in the in the Afghan context. We're going to see somebody who is unwilling to return to home country, and for good reason. Somebody who simply does not want to go home for our next uh, bullet, which is the well-founded fear of persecution or past persecution. And we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about this. But this is our standard of proof. Um, you don't have to prove that it's more likely than not that they'll be persecuted if they go back to home country, but you do have to prove that they have that well-founded fear. Um, the next, uh, the next uh, bullet is um, the on account of or the nexus piece. This is also referred to as our causation. It's not enough to have that fear of persecution. That persecution would have to be on account of, and then we move to our next bullet, one of those five protected grounds, race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or social group. As we mentioned a little earlier, it's uh, the grant of asylum is discretionary, and um, somebody who would get asylum would have, you know, uh, have not to be uh, subject to the bars to asylum. So with that, let's move on to persecution. Um, you'll all be delighted to know that persecution doesn't have a solid concrete definition. Uh, generally, persecution involves serious harm or a threat of serious harm or even death. Um, some acts may constitute persecution depending on the severity, the frequency, and the cumulative effects of those acts. So maybe one instance or one interaction alone would not rise to the level of persecution, but you can take a totality of circumstances or lived experiences of your client and um, bring them together to make an argument that in the aggregate, they constitute persecution. And the decision of whether or not um, certain past experiences actually constitute persecution is decided on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, as a practice tip, it's a really good idea to just look for cases that are analogous in terms of the, the harm suffered by uh, the applicant. 
um, cases from the Board of Immigration Appeals or in your circuit or even the Supreme Court will shed light on um, how persecution is interpreted where, where you are. Um, uh, so the circuits and the BIA have had disputes about uh, what physical harm, for example, is sufficient to amount to persecution. Um, and but some examples that we have seen on the ground are, are perpetual surveillance, pressure to be an informant, uh, torture, uh, sexual assault, death threats, and it bears repeating, torture. <laughs> um, so uh, something important to note is that uh, a lot of times when people think about who the persecutor is in an asylum context, they think that the, the persecutor must be the government, must be the state, but that's not the reality. The persecutor can be, of course, the government, but um, it can also be somebody or a group of people that the government cannot or will not control. A lot of the folks that you'll be meeting um, who are uh, seeking asylum in, in the Afghan context are fleeing the Taliban who've assumed the role of government, um, but one need not prove that that they are the government to uh, prove that they are a persecutor and that that person is not safe in the home in home country. What is important when talking about uh, your persecutor is this idea that that there is no safe place in home country for the applicant to to be and and to live, um, and and you'll want to collect evidence such as country condition reports that show that the Taliban have gained control of uh, the entirety of the country or have access or could find your uh, your client anywhere in, in Afghanistan. Um, so let's move on to well-founded fear. Um, if you, this is our standard as we mentioned and it doesn't seem very clear to us, what is, what is a well-founded fear? Um, what makes somebody's fear well-founded? Well, there's a subjective element to it and an objective element. And the subjective element is a bit more straightforward. It's just showing that your applicant, your client, is genuinely afraid to return to Afghanistan. And um, that, that can be demonstrated you know, with, their own, with their own words, with their own behavior, their actions. You know, they, in the case of many um, folks who entered with humanitarian parole, they fled to the airport and hopped a flight um, uh, and have remained in, in, um, on bases before you know, getting here to the United States. And, and that, that behavior is also demonstrative of a subjective fear. Um, something to consider also is, is uh, having uh, the consideration and, and the conversation with your client that um, that they should not feel inhibited in terms of demonstrating or, or discussing that fear during an interview. Um, in some cultures, uh, showing fear is tabooed. Um, so, so you'll wanna talk to your client about this element. Uh, you'll wanna talk to your client about all the elements, but you'll wanna talk to your client about this one and, and how it is important to discuss that fear um, uh, you know, in, in discussing their, their case. Um, the next, uh, the next bit of well-founded fear is this objective standard, and and here it's a um, that that somebody a reasonable person in his or her circumstance would fear persecution. And like I said earlier, it's not that it's more likely than not that they'll be persecuted in home country. Even a ten percent chance that they would be persecuted is enough for a reasonable person in that circumstance to fear returning home. If there's a one in ten chance that I'm going to be uh, killed by by uh, returning to my home, I might think twice about wanting to return home. 
Um, uh, in the case uh, matter of Mohrabi, um, uh, the BIA comes up with a test, um, and it's a little redundant, but the test for a well-founded fear is that the applicant possesses a characteristic or opinion that the persecutor wants to repress. Um, so let's let's not uh, let's let's work with an example. Um, an individual, say, who is uh, Shia, might fear persecution at the hands of the Taliban. Um, if that person that person possesses the characteristic of being Shia, uh, the persecutor, the Taliban, may want to uh, repress that, um, and then. The persecutor, one would have to show that the persecutor, the Taliban in this case, was aware or likely to become aware of the applicant's uh, uh, religion in this case. That might be that they may have an identity card that lists, lists their religion. They may have been um, a, a outspoken member of, uh, of, their, of their congregation. Um, the next the next uh, bullet is that the persecutor seeks to repress. Oh, we'll go. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> the persecutor seeks to repress that opinion or a characteristic in the applicant, um, and and finally that the the persecutor has the capacity to persecute the applicant. Now, you may uh, the evidence to to prove some of these points may very well lie in country condition reports or human rights reports that detail the Taliban's um, uh, policies with regards to certain groups. You may also have to rely on news stories, and we'll talk briefly about evidence a bit later. Um, finally, there's this this concept of the pattern and practice claim. Some folks will have experienced past persecution. Um, some folks will just know that that uh, people who are similarly situated in home country are being persecuted and thus a return to home country would put that put a target on their backs and and that's really a type of case those pattern and practice claims is really an instance in which you would really want to seek out those country condition reports or or even select uh, statements from experts or folks who are similarly situated um, we can move to the the next slide now there is no better uh, uh, type of evidence of a well-founded fear than actual experiences of past persecution. In fact, when you present that somebody has already suffered persecution in home country, you've created this rebuttable presumption that, um, that they have that well-founded fear of persecution. Um, now, we're not in court, so the, the Department of Homeland Security is not opposing counsel in, in this scenario. We're talking about affirmative applications for asylum, generally, uh, when we're talking about the Af Afghan parolees. Um, but the Department of Homeland Security is adjudicating these cases, and they will have an interest in exploring whether or not any changes in circumstances have happened in Afghanistan since their departure that would show, or since their persecution, that would show that persecution is unlikely to happen again in the future. Or even that simple relocation internally within Afghanistan would be enough to evade any kind of future persecution. When we're talking, as, as in many of these cases about the Taliban, uh, the situation in Afghanistan has really deteriorated further and, um, and the, the Taliban has become more powerful throughout the country. So um, you'd want to collect you know, country condition reports that that uh, that prove that point uh, to protect your client's claim. Um, 
There is a presumption that when dealing with government persecutors, there really is no safe internal relocation. And any internal relocation would have to be reasonable. You know, it's not an expectation that somebody, you know, build a bomb shelter and live underground to be, and, and then they've internally relocated. It has to be something that's reasonable to them given their, uh, their access to resources and experiences in home country. Um, we can move to the next slide now. Um, so now we move on to nexus, which is um, a very, very important element to prove and one that can be a little bit more complex. This is our causation piece. It's not enough, as we said, to simply fear that persecution. That persecution would have to be on the grounds of, uh, of membership in one of those five protected uh, grounds. So uh, we're gonna talk a little bit more about those, those grounds shortly. Um, you know, it's in some situations you have a persecutor who makes very clear who they're persecuting and why. Um, and in some cases, it's a bit more murky. It might be that um, uh, I suspect that I have a government persecutor who's persecuting me both for my um, outspoken feminist uh, uh, ideals and also because I happen to own a very uh, you know lucrative piece of land. Um, that's when we think about the mixed motives of our persecutor. In that case, you would want to show that at least one central reason for the persecution was one of those five protected grounds. It, and that idea of what at least one central reason really is, is a demonstration that it's, it's more than incidental or tangential, uh, superficial or subordinate for the feared persecution. And, and that's to say that in that instance, um, my outspoken feminist ideals would be would perhaps be the um, would be a strong enough reason, a standalone reason for me to be persecuted by this persecutor. Um, the last bullet discusses kind of watching out for civil war concerns, and and that's kind of what I refer to as the things are rough all over pony boy argument. Um, the the department sometimes will will consider that if a, if a country is in civil war or war torn or is struggling through famine as, as Afghanistan is right now, um, that, that somebody uh, may just be collateral damage to, to that civil war, as opposed to having that well-founded fear of persecution. But if you are pro, you know, presenting a strong case for nexus, then a civil war or a famine is, is not, you know, is largely irrelevant to the fear that your client, you know, has and and their claim for asylum. So you'll want to, uh, you'll be able to avoid those kinds of concerns with a strong argument for nexus. So let's let's move on now to talk about those protected grounds. Here we have race, religion, and nationality, and these are some of the more straightforward uh, elements uh, of asylum. Race, you know. Being what it is, if somebody's being persecuted on, on, on the grounds of their race, then, then uh, you, you very well have a, a case for asylum. The next is religion. Um, and uh, examples in the Afghan context could be somebody who's Shia, Christians, Baha'i, Ismaili. Um, so sects of Islam, uh, minority sects of Islam, uh, are, are seeing a, a great deal of, of persecution on the ground. Um, and, and those individuals uh, and, and those who are similarly situated are, are, are able to, um, to bring their asylum claim. Uh, the next is nationality. And here there's a little bit of room for creativity because it's not just one's national origin. Um, ethnic minorities and tribes um, 
can also fall under this nationality protected ground. And that's really important in Afghanistan because you have examples of, of, uh, of tribes who are um, being persecuted, such as the Hazara. Um, now, these some of these groups can be intertwined, and that's okay when you have protected grounds that are intertwined. For example, a lot of folks, but not everyone who's Hazara, may also are also Shia. Um, and both of those groups, there, there are reports of both of those groups being persecuted in Afghanistan. Um, so it, you can tackle it in a couple of ways. You can, uh, you can bring claims for both religion and nationality. That's fine. It's okay to have uh, multiple theories of your case. You can say it's because it's somebody is both Shia and Hazara. You can also make uh, alternative arguments. Uh, this client is being persecuted because they're Shia. In the alternative, um, they're being uh, persecuted on, on the basis of being Hazara. So one shouldn't be super concerned about bringing multiple theories for their case. You just don't want to bring so many that you're you're diluting your arguments here. When you have um, intertwined uh, protected grounds, it's 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 quite uh, common to to bring those those multiple theories. Let's move on to some of the more complicated protected grounds. The next is political opinion. Um, so when we talk about a political opinion, we, we don't have to necessarily, though it's, it's, it's great to have a, a client who is kind of like the card carrying opposition member who wears the t-shirt and, and, and protests in the street. That is great and, and one could um, uh, use that, that example as a, for, or that client for, for a claim for political asylum, um, but, um, but one need not uh, be uh, you know, kind of that classic dissident to qualify for asylum under the political opinion uh, protected ground. There are circuit splits on the definition of a political opinion, so you'll want to research the definition in your circuit. But uh, political opinions, as we said, don't have to be that classic dissident. They um, they may not be a member of a political party, though they may be. Um, somebody who holds a particular political opinion, such as a woman who uh, seeks access for education for girls has demonstrated a political opinion. Also, I need not you know, identify as a, feminist, as a feminist to demonstrate perhaps feminist ideals or a feminist political opinion with certain behavior or certain actions. So it's really important here is that, that when you're working with a client who may have a political opinion claim, that is that you really get to the nitty gritty of their experiences in home country and not just why they fear, why they think they're being persecuted, but also taking a look at some of the kind of causes and effects. When, when a client takes action X, then they get persecution Y. Um, and that can be uh, used both for nexus, but also to kind of get an understanding of why your client is being persecuted, which of those political, uh, sorry, those, those five protected grounds. Um, so, as we mentioned, that could be somebody who's in an opposition party, but somebody also who could have a very specific political opinion. There is a circuit split on the concept of neutrality. So somebody who doesn't have a political opinion and is being persecuted because of that, you're either with us or you're against us kind of mentalities. Um, so you'll wanna look into your own circuits case law to, to know whether or not uh, you, your client would have a claim in that case. Also, I, I just want to tell, uh, talk briefly about the, the theory of an imputed political opinion. 
Um, and this is the idea where you may not actually hold a political opinion, but one is imputed to you. There's a there's a belief perhaps that that I held very pro-American, a very pro-American stance, but that might not be the reality. But nonetheless, I'm being persecuted because of that perceived political opinion. That's a ground for, for claiming uh, asylum. That is an imputed political opinion case. And imputation can be used in the other, uh, in the other protected grounds, though we don't see it as much and there probably is less case law on it. Um, but we, we definitely see that more often than not in the political opinion context. Um, let's move to the next one, and perhaps my least favorite of the, the well, it's not my least favorite, it's, it's just perhaps one of the murkiest uh, parts of, uh, of the protected grounds, and that's the social group. So what's a social group? Um, no, it is not your clique. It is a, it is a, um, it, fit, it fits, it's, it's kind of a catch-all of, uh, of asylum uh, groups. And um, it, as I said, it, it tends to be a bit more complicated. When, when you're talking about a social group, you want to prove that this group of individuals, this collection of individuals to which your client uh, is a member, has first and foremost an immutable characteristic. And that's something that is either you know, inherent to them, something that they um, cannot or should not be expected to change about themselves. Um, so, uh, for example, sexual orientation or gender identity, uh, the, that, that would be an immutable characteristic. The next is this idea of social distinction, also referred to as social visibility. And it's, um, it's that this group is identified and recognized as a collection of people in that community. So, for example, I mean, an immutable characteristic I may have is, is that I have brown eyes. Um, but is that really a socially distinct group? Our brown-eyed folks in my community seen as a group and and treated as a a group for which um, you know persecution is is welcome. I, that would be a harder argument to make, but it depends on the it, it depends on the context. So you'd want to argue that this the the social group to which your client belongs actually is socially distinct, is distinguished in that society and identifiable. Um, and finally, you have the concept of particularity. So the bounds of that particular social group have to be identifiable, they have to be rigid, they can't be amorphous. I can't be in the social group tomorrow and not the day after that. Um, so um, an example would be wealthy Afghans would not be a very well-defined uh, group. It's not clear what makes somebody wealthy. Somebody can also not be wealthy the day after. Um, so uh, when, when crafting, I mean, all things equal, if a social group has already been tried and true in case law, it's a great idea if, you're, if your client actually belongs to that social group and is being persecuted because of it, um, or fierce persecution because of it, that you go with that tried and true uh, social group. But that's not to say that you yourself cannot, uh, you know, devise and present the social group, a new social group, one that, you know, hasn't actually uh, uh, been rooted in any kind of uh, precedent. So as I mentioned a little earlier, there are some examples of social groups that, that are a bit uh, tried and true, sexual orientation and gender identity, Family groups, so being a member of a family, um, if you are, especially from a member of a prominent and visible family, but also one where, say, that family may be uh, 
you may have claims that that are intertwined with a political opinion case. So my uh, if my father was an informant for the uh, uh, for the Americans, and uh, I, I'm now fearful of persecution because I'm his daughter, then then I may have a a claim uh, for for asylum, not just as a an imputed political opinion, but also because I'm a member of my family. Um, and and I could just show that similarly situated members of my family were also in danger of persecution, if not actually persecuted. Um, gender and, and sex tend to be a bit difficult um, when we're talking about cisgendered folks um, as a standalone as a standalone claim. Afghan women could be successful in some environments, um, but not in all. And so it's a little risky to present a case that's just Afghan women, say. Um, and, and that's because there's this, um, I think, ill-advised concern uh, about, about opening the floodgates. And, and then now all women from Afghanistan, this idea being that all women from Afghanistan would, would qualify for asylum. That wouldn't be the case, even if, uh, if, this, was a, if this was a recognized uh, social group. But because there is resistance to simply you know, a, a gender-based, a, a solely gender-based uh, social group, it, oftentimes when you're creating a social group that involves gender or sex, you add another attribute that, that is uh, you know, a reality for your client, um, but also uh, it, it's great for that other attribute to have some root in other protected grounds, uh, for example, Hazara Af Afghan women or uh, Afghan women who seek to educate young girls, for example. Um, so it's a it's a murky area of uh, protect of asylum law and the protected ground specifically, but that doesn't mean it can't be done, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't explore it, especially if the reality on the ground is that that's the, that's why your your client is is fearing persecution in home country. Um, Let's move on to the next slide. Yep. So we're going to talk a little bit now about discretion. And as I said, just because you qualify for asylum doesn't mean you uh, will, will get asylum. The adjudicator is going to consider a totality of one's circumstances in deciding whether somebody is deserving. And every case is going to have some negative factors and some positive factors. Um, some examples of what those factors might be would be tender age and health. Um, somebody's in in in, um, in failing health. It would be a um, you know there would be an argument there for for keeping them here in the United States, especially if they qualify for asylum. Um, if somebody has family members who are in status in the United States, that's another that's a point in somebody's favor. If there are humanitarian concerns regarding return, which I think one could simply like could quite easily make that argument in the in the Afghan context. Um, that's a point in your client's favor. Their manner of entry into the United States. Um, so um, it, historically, um, there, you know, some some adjudicators have not looked favorably on somebody who has entered the United States without permission. That's not really a concern when we're talking about Afghans with humanitarian parole. Uh, they have entered the United States with permission um, and uh, are are permitted to to be in the United States. And, and a lot of uh, the focus when we talk about negative discretionary factors really focus on regard for criminal and immigration laws. And just because your client has a uh, negative factor doesn't mean that you should throw in the towel. You, um, you'll want to mitigate those, 
those negative factors with a host of positive ones. Some people like to collect uh, character witness statements and, and submit them on behalf of their client uh, to mitigate some of any kind of negative factors. Um, let's move on to some of the bars of asylum. So there are uh, a few bars to asylum, and I'm not going to get too uh, detailed here because we really uh, will we'll, we'll take a deep dive on this um, in our future presentation on, on some of the bars to asylum. But um, we are going to touch upon them quickly so that you are able to kind of spot some of those red flags. Uh, the first is firm resettlement, um, and that's the idea that somebody uh, is has a access to a legal status in another country. So if I'm, you know, Afghan and French, it's going to be much harder for me to claim asylum in the United States unless I can demonstrate that I'm being persecuted in both uh, Afghanistan and France. Um, and, and the idea of somebody who has passed through another country or even spent a little time there, um, the idea here is not really about the duration of their time in any other country so much as their quality of the relationship between that individual and the country in which they either passed through or spent a period of time. Um, and the second is this idea of uh, a safe third country and and those are those safe third countries are, are pursuant to a treaty right now there's only really one safe third country it's considered canada uh, we have a treaty with canada that indicates that if somebody is an asylum seeker and they get to canada first they need to pursue asylum in canada they can't use canada as their route to the united states um the next is the one-year bar and and uh, traditionally, uh, there somebody who uh, applies for asylum needs to file uh, their application within one year of entry into the United States. Um, when it comes to the Afghan context, and specifically with uh, those with humanitarian parole, um, there's definitely been some talk in the background and an expectation that the government is going to extend that one-year bar to a two-year bar at the length of the um, uh, one status in humanitarian parole. But um, because that has that that hasn't, and though we have an expectation of some advisories coming out from the government um, uh, and 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 from uh, uh, you know other immigrant advocacy organizations coming out um, and saying that you can wait for two years to apply, I would still advise that somebody apply within that one year until we have. Um, anything concrete coming from USCIS or the Department of Homeland Security on this subject. Um, there are uh, exceptions to the one-year bar, including extraordinary circumstances, and that could be somebody's cognitive incapacity, um, uh, youth, if somebody's under the age of 18, there's a legal incapacity there, um, and uh, also if there's really severe mental health uh, concerns as well. Um, the idea then is just to apply for asylum as, as quickly as one can. Um, but all things equal, if you can apply for asylum within that one year um, of entry for your, for your client, uh, it's really advisable to do so. Um, another is the persecutor, another bar to asylum is the persecutor bar. So if your client has ever engaged in any kind of behavior that can be considered as, as, as persecution, um, then they would be barred from asylum in the United States. And something important here to, dis, to, to consider is whether even if they were persecuting somebody under duress, so if they were being forced to persecute somebody, that, that may also uh, still be a bar to asylum and something that one would want to explore with their client and certainly attend um, our, our, our presentation, our deeper dive on um, 
on the bars to asylum. And similarly, and, and perhaps the area that we have seen the most concern from the department are the uh, terrorism bars. And, and those are also referred to as the, the trig uh, bars, the terrorism inadmissibility um, grounds. So, so we've seen on the ground a lot of interviews in which uh, this point was belabored, any and all interactions with the Taliban, any and all uh, support, even if de minimis, even if really quite uh, small for the Taliban, even if under duress, has been explored in these interviews. And if you have these concerns, as, as we, all, we, we all would, um, uh, then, then we, should, we should certainly attend that uh, future presentation on, on the, the trig uh, bar. Um, uh, any kind of criminal uh, behavior should be, uh, you know, explored to understand if, if there are any kind of uh, bars for asylum. Particularly serious crimes are, are often uh, are, are defined as aggravated felonies. And what makes an aggravated felony is a very complicated and rich area of, uh, of immigration law. So again, this is, I can't I can't belabor this point enough. If if you have uh, concerns about the bars to asylum for for future clients, as we all should, um, then we uh, it, it behooves us to to attend that presentation. And finally, on on uh, any kind of crime that that um, concerns about crime, one need not be convicted of a crime for it to be a bar to asylum. So exploring all of those details with your clients at the intake phase is really quite important. Uh, let's move on to our next uh, bit. So let's talk a little bit now about how to apply affirmatively uh, for asylum for our for our clients. So um, you would apply for asylum if you're in the affirmative context for somebody who is in status here in the United States and is not in removal proceedings, and, and that's gonna be the majority of folks with humanitarian parole, um, you would apply via the asylum office in the jurisdiction where the application where the applicant lives, and um, you would apply by mail. Uh, the, the information of where you should apply and the form and the instructions of, of, for the form are all available at the USCIS.gov website, we have a link there in the, in the PowerPoint. Um, the form is called the I-589 application for asylum. Uh, that's the, the I think it's 12 page form that you'll be uh, using to, you know, filling out with your client to, uh, to present. You'll want to read the instructions for the form quite carefully. You'll want to be sure to, to fill in uh, all the boxes that you can um, uh, on the form. There were instances in which blank boxes on the form would yield a rejection of the application. We're not seeing that as, as much now um, following some litigation, but uh, if it's, it is definitely advisable to fill in every box that one can um, on the I-589 form. If you're representing a client who is um, filing for asylum, you'd also file a G-28 notice of entry of appearance. And it's a pretty straightforward uh, short form describing uh, your, your, uh, you know, your relationship to your client. And that's also available at USCIS.gov. No, that's all right, we can go to the next slide. Thanks. Um, so what is, uh, what will we see in a typical application for asylum? The first is we'll, we'll see a cover letter. Um, and uh, some people treat cover letters differently. Um, some people use the cover letter as an opportunity to give a short statement about the case. And there should generally be a statement about the case in one's cover letter. 
Um, and some people treat the cover letter as a full length brief. And that's, that's a, a strategic decision that you may make. Um, asylum officers uh, vary in, in how much they're willing to, or how much opportunity they have to read in the entire application um, and submissions. So some people are, um, uh, you know, make the decision to go for a shorter cover letter and some, and some put forth a, a, a robust legal argument there in the cover letter. Um, you'll also include, as we mentioned, that I-589 form. And if you are representing your client, that G-28 form as well. Uh, and, and when you file a G-28 form, it's, it's notable because you'll receive the correspondence from uh, the asylum office uh, at your, at, you know, where you are. Um, so if you would like to be part of the correspondence and, and know and receive kind of the notices in, in relation to this case, then you'll, you'll definitely want to submit that G-28. And of course, when you submit, submit an application for asylum, you'll want to include as much evidence as possible. Um, some folks might send a bare bones uh, application and supplement it later, but because this is um, Afghan cases are being um, scheduled within 45 days of the submission, uh, you'll get a, a notice for the scheduled appointment within 45 days of the submission and are being adjudicated within 150 days of that submission. Um, there, some people may send a bare bones application just to meet that one year deadline and then later supplement. Um, and some may send the entire uh, submission um, from the beginning because there may be less time between your submission and receiving that, that notice date. Um, and when you have the interview scheduled, you'll want to make sure that any and all evidence is submitted uh, uh, two weeks in advance um, and received by the asylum office two weeks in advance. Um, some examples of evidence include uh, declarations, official documents, identity documents are required, um, uh, proof of status, country condition reports, medical reports. So if somebody has been uh, harmed physically, medical reports can be used as evidence to demonstrate some of that physical harm. Psychological evaluations can also be used to demonstrate the effects of any kind of harm, which would be proof of, of some of that harm, and also uh, proof of well-founded fear. Um, photographs uh, relevant to the case, news stories, and I think news stories here in the Afghan context are really quite relevant because um, a lot of uh, human rights organizations are still collecting uh, evidence as to as to the Taliban's current behavior. Um, for example, the kind of gold standard of country condition reports is the U.S. human rights reports that are issued each year for 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 different countries and um, the current uh, the current report um, was released before the Taliban came to power so so that that resource isn't necessarily available definitely keep checking to see if the Department of State has released a newer uh, report for um, uh, for Afghanistan that that encompasses the Taliban's now rise to power. Um, but there are some human rights groups that that may have their own reports out, and there are also a fair amount of news stories reporting on what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan. Um, text messages and audio recordings might be um, might be great evidence in your case, especially if somebody was receiving threats uh, by text messages. Um, declarations, you know, mentioned at the beginning, is are, are some of the best forms of. Uh, of evidence in, in these cases, especially your client's statement. Your client's statement should um, 
should really note their experiences. Those declarations are an opportunity for the adjudicator to learn about the claim, to receive that statement as evidence, and perhaps the strongest bit of evidence, to bolster your client's credibility. So being able to, to, to be interviewed and to discuss the same content that's in that, that uh, declaration will really bolster your client's credibility so long as they're, they're consistent. Um, and, and really, I think that when presenting those declarations, it's an opportunity to, to tug at the heartstrings of, of the reader. I mean, you're, this is your opportunity to present your client and to give the adjudicator an opportunity to learn about what they've suffered in home country and what they fear. So um, certainly don't hold back in those, in those declarations. Something really important to note about uh, for, for evidence is that um, evidence needs to be submitted in English. You can submit a, a document that is in um, another language, but you would want to have it translated to English and accompany uh, the, you know, the copy of the, the original statement. And all translations need to be certified translations. That doesn't mean that the person doing the translator, the translation needs to be a certified translator. It just means that they would need to um, certify that they have uh, the ability to translate between the, the language in which um, they're translating from to English. Um, and uh, if you have a copy of that PowerPoint, you'll, you'll receive a copy of this PowerPoint, you'll see um, a sample uh, certified translation uh, link in the notes on this slide. Really important, do not send any originals to the asylum office. That's really important because those originals become part of the record. They can also disappear. So you wouldn't want to send your client's passport or their um, identity document to the, um, to the asylum office. You would want to bring those original documents with you to the interview so that they can be inspected. Um, but you certainly wouldn't want to lose them in the off chance that your client, I mean, in, in the chance that your client is not successful in their case and, and maybe later is pursuing um, an asylum claim before a court, um, then they would still want that evidence. So really don't, don't, take, don't risk it, don't send those originals. Um, for submission of the application, just uh, review those instructions quite carefully because um, they'll have details as to where you should submit the the application and just as a as a tip um you'll any way that you that you mail whether via usps or fedex um you will want to get tracking on that uh, submission so that you have proof that it has arrived um let's move to the next slide so what can we expect after that submission um Usually within a few weeks of submitting your uh, that application, you'll receive um, a notice, an ASC notice called the biometrics appointment for a biometrics appointment, and that's um, an appointment for your client and any derivatives to go and get their picture taken and fingerprinted. Um, that information is collected by the the government to do a background check. Um, so not much should happen at that at that appointment other than getting their their picture taken and their fingerprints and and collecting biometrics. Information. They shouldn't be talking about their claims. They shouldn't be asked about their claims. Um, and oftentimes, clients go without an attorney to those those biometrics appointments, unless you know, unless there's reason um, or concerns um, that that uh, you know an attorney would want to accompany them. You'd also receive um, the uh, appointment notice uh, soon after, and it will list the date and time 
both the biometrics appointment and the interview um, theoretically can be rescheduled. It can be a little difficult getting hold of somebody to reschedule them. The information as to how to reschedule those interviews uh, or those appointments is listed on the notices. Um, but uh, there, we have had reports of folks on the ground being at the asylum offices being resistant to rescheduling because of statutory requirements for completing um, the interview and uh, adjudication within a certain a shorter a shorter schedule. And then you'll have the the interview. Um, then we can get that next. Uh, okay, so let's talk really briefly about uh, future webinars. Um, as Adonia mentioned, this is part of a webinar series and we're really quite excited about it. It's a really exciting uh, subject matter. Um, we have uh, three, um, we have three uh, upcoming webinars. Um, first is um, a, a webinar on cultural humility and working with Afghan clients. I think we can turn to the next slide. Um, um, cultural humility and working with Afghan clients. And that's really important, not just for the sake of fostering a good relationship with your client and being respectful of your client, though I will say that that, that really should be a priority, but also because that's the way that you can cultivate a relationship where you will collect more information and be able to present the strongest case for your client. So really a, a really important uh, uh, webinar to attend. And we have certainly some great speakers um, in, in this and in other uh, presentations. And then uh, we're expecting that one on uh, February 9th from three to four uh, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, the following one, Asylum 201, uh, that's a really important one for folks to attend. Uh, the bars to asylum and common issues in asylum uh, applications. Uh, we're expecting that in late February, so stay tuned uh, for, for that uh, webinar. And then finally, the Asylum 202 uh, webinar, preparing for the asylum interview. Uh, that's scheduled for uh, Tuesday, March 15, uh, 2022, <laughs> from 3 to 4.30 uh, p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and you can uh, sign up and learn more about this and other uh, presentations um, on uh, the ABA's uh, website, but also following us on, on social media as well. And, and I'm sure that, that Hias is, is making this content available uh, as well. Uh, finally, later this week, we expect um, our pro bono guide for Afghan asylum. Our, our partnership uh, between ABA and Hias has, has cultivated a great uh, pro bono guide uh, for, for those of us representing um, Afghan asylum seekers. And uh, you should see that uh, released later, I believe later this week. Um, and uh, I believe this is an opportunity now to... Uh, well, before we jump into questions, uh, there was one more webinar I did wanna share. Um, the ABA International Law section is actually having a webinar tomorrow, Thursday, January 13th from 12 to one Eastern entitled Afghan Immigration, What You Still Need to Know. I will, I've shared it in the, in the chat. Um, also the, the links for the other upcoming webinars that have been scheduled. Um, right now, I do wanna take this opportunity to announce the CLE code. Um, the CLE code is 766-ASY. Again, 766-ASY. And we will be circulating the CLE form to all attendees after this. Also, there've been some questions. We will be also sharing the PowerPoint presentation. Um, I wanna give a huge thank you to our colleagues at HIAS who have been um, diligently answering the questions in the Q&A. 
for folks, if you haven't been watching the Q&A, there have been some amazing questions and responses from, uh, from Sarah and Rachel at Hyas. We will be downloading that and sharing that along with the, uh, with the PowerPoint. So please stay tuned for that. Um, and in these last four minutes, um, uh, we do want to open it up for questions. So if you have not had your question addressed in the Q&A, uh, please feel free to take yourself to raise your hand. And um, Bridget, will you be able to take people off mute for questions? And while we're waiting for that to happen, uh, one more thing I wanted to announce is I did share the link in the chat to actually get involved. Dina has shared this phenomenal information with you, this, this general overview of asylum and the asylum process. But if you want to take that next step and uh, potentially take a case um, that is being uh, vetted by highest of its affiliates um, and receive uh, mentorship and office hour support, um, I did provide the link to sign up. Um, Rachel, I don't know if you want to pop it in the chat again, because I think it got a little bit buried. Oh. I just did. You're read your mind, mind Adonia. <laughs> um, so in these last few minutes, if you do have any questions, uh, please feel free to raise your hand. It looks like we have um, Leah uh, Wilson. Bridget, would we be able to, to bring her off of mute to ask her question? Adonia, before we do that, I'm sorry to interrupt. Mm -hmm. Can we put the CLE code out one more time? I think a few people missed it. Of course, of course. Again, the CLE code is 766. ASY again 766 ASY Bridget are you able to take um, folks off of mute who've raised their hands All right it looks like as hands raised right now we have Mark Davis. Ignore, ignore me, Adonia. All right, uh, no worries. Any other questions? Well, again, uh, we'll be sharing uh, the responses from the Q&A. Again, thank you, Rachel and Sarah, for, for addressing all of these phenomenal questions. And we'll be sharing the PowerPoint with you all. And please stay tuned. Please tune into the deeper dives where we'll be exploring a lot of the questions that you all had today. All right. OK. Thanks again, everyone. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We look forward to working with you. Thank you all. Have a great day.